Hey, everyone. Welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast. I'm your host, Richard Gaffin. I'm joined, as always, by Taylor Holiday, CEO of Common Thread Collective. And we're really excited to have a guest joining us today. His name's Jordan West. He's a podcaster. He's a CEO. He's a CMO. He's a brand owner. He's the owner of an agency. He's a former paramedic, amongst many other things. And so we're going to get into that a little bit later. But first off, just want to say, Jordan, super stoked to have you on the show. Welcome. Hey, really, really appreciate you having me on here. And honestly, that, that intro actually stresses me out. I'm like, oh yeah, that's that's a lot of stuff that I'm doing right now. I, I think I need to cut a little bit of that out of my life. So <laughs> totally, yeah, I was going through your LinkedIn bio and I was noticing a lot of overlap between a lot of the different things. But I mean, I think it would be awesome to start just by talking about your background a little bit, just because it's so interesting. So your LinkedIn bio anyway, kicks off talking about purchasing and owning and running a Taco Del Mar, which, so you're from Canada, right? BC? I am. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just outside of Vancouver. Okay, cool. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that. You were 23 when you did this. Sounds like it was a sort of a difficult time for a while, but yeah, just talk about that and how it kicked off the rest of your journey. Yeah. So at the time I'd been married for about a year, I always wanted to get into business. So I was a paramedic at the time and I was like, Oh, you know, I want to get into business. I, what exactly am I going to do? And I, I didn't know anything at the time, right? Mm -hmm. All that I knew is I had a $30,000 line of credit. And I was like, okay, I'm going to use that. I'm going to max it out and I'm going to just buy something. And so I went on Craigslist and at the time, Taco Del Mar was in their corporate, was in a bankruptcy and, but the stores were still running and there was a store for sale for like 35,000. And I was like, oh man, I mean, the equipment is probably worth more than $35,000. Like I know it cost about like 300 to get these stores up and running. I'm like, what's the worst case scenario? I'm going to lose 35 grand. Like I think I can recover from that. That's okay. Well, I mean, the worst case scenario for me at 23 was a lot worse than that. It was, you know, 80 hour weeks. I was painting houses. I was oh paramedic. <laughs> I was, you know, working insane amounts of overtime. And then on top of that, I was going into the store to try to grow these sales and make money. And we did grow the sales. We grew the sales. We almost tripled sales over the five years that we had it, but we just never made money <laughs> because our margins were so bad. And especially being in Canada, we were importing a lot of things from the States and there's just a lot of costs that go into that, that Americans probably don't realize, especially for us importing and, you know, working on the currency, the opposite way of what we do now, <laughs> where mm -hmm. it's, uh, it just is incredibly difficult. So many incredible lessons out of that. And I do not regret that one for a second. We probably ended up losing about 150 grand uh, throughout our entire, you know, our entire time there, which now is kind of funny in retrospect with the amount of the size of businesses that we have, where it's like, you can make a $150,000 mistake pretty easily these days in e-com. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Just out, totally out of curiosity, what's an unexpected import for a Canadian that our US listeners would be surprised about? Oh, like, so for instance, when we would import our chicken, right, which we had to because it was like the Taco Del Mar style chicken, we couldn't just, mm. you know, go buy chicken up here. They put $50 a box in tariffs coming over the border because oh, wow. we protect our chicken up here. And so we had to pay that extra $50. So you can imagine what that does to every single scoop of meat you put on a burrito. It just adds cost after cost after cost. And it just becomes so prohibitive interesting for people out there that they for americans that may they may not realize when a package gets sent up to canada if it's over 20 dollars, we have to pay duty on it but we oh, wow. can send down to the states i believe it's about 800 right without any duty and without incurring any of like you know going through the border services or anything like that so it's very difficult for us to get things into canada we're very we really protect our economy probably too much so <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. That was fascinating because Taylor and I were having a conversation a couple of days ago about where Taylor was sort of salivating over uh, the Canadian cost of labor 
And so, you know, I guess it's a little bit of a winsome, loosome uh, working north of the border there. Can I interject on the Canadian labor thing? Because I, I want to I frame. So if you think about the opposite of what Jordan's describing, right? So he's buying meat priced in U.S. dollars with Canadian dollars and then paying a tariff, right? Which like is that's the, the like opposite. a 30% problem right away. Right. Well, I know I have a couple of friends that run Canadian agencies and what they're the opposite is if you pay your employees in Canadian dollars and your customers pay you in U.S. dollars, you're getting the opposite benefit. So one one of the things that I've been sort of interested in is we're always thinking about cost of labor, right? Like there's a constant conversation. And and so I've been, you know, I have a few friends that run agencies in Canada and there's a real advantage in this moment to having Canadian labor and the what you can pay them and the actual quality of life that they can sustain at a certain salary comparable to here in the US that like you said, the difference in the value of the currencies actually makes a difference. And so it's a really interesting thing to think about. So I'm curious, like, do you guys, Jordan, price everything in US dollars primarily then? Or do you? We do, yeah. Okay, yeah. So yeah, that's so exactly what I thought. Everything, everything except for one of our e-com companies, it's a very Canadian company. It's our baby clothing brand. It is a made in Canada clothing brand. So we do price in Canadian dollars for the most part. But anytime we're selling into the States, it's always in US dollars. We love US dollars in Canada. Yep. And this is, it's funny because like growing up, this is just like what you're used to. You're used to always playing these currency games with the States. Yeah, it's so interesting. Like it's just not a thing that we ever think about, right? And I was like, as I was talking to my buddy, I was like, oh, wow, you're right. Like, And so I'm always looking at these like edges for agency. Like what is the unique value proposition or reason that your thing can win over others. I was talking to another friend who runs an agency in Missouri and uh, we were comparing like sort of the standard media buyer price of a media buyer in Southern California versus in Missouri. And it's just the reality that it's like being able to have a manufacturer who makes your product at 20% less cost. You just, you have more margin, you know? And so it's interesting to think about competing on price. Like, so do you think about that is a lever. Like, do you as an agency think like, okay, we have pricing opportunity to undercut the market or do you try and just create excess margin? Like, how do you think about that as a tool when building your business strategy as an agency? Yeah, I mean, on, on the agency side, it's definitely just a tool for us to be able to provide more value, right? Like we we don't like, I don't like playing the pricing game. I think you guys are in this exact same boat where you price lower, you're going to get lower quality clients, right? The worst clients that we ever had were when they were paying $500 a month when I was a, you know, a consultant and I was just trying to like figure all this kind of stuff out. Those are the worst clients, right? They wanted everything all the time. Nothing was ever good enough. And the clients, you know, that are, you know, it's paying, you know, 10 to $15,000 a month are the ones that are incredibly happy. They're the ones that we're actually able to provide a ton of value for. And so we can actually provide a lot more value because of the cost of labor here, right? Like a $70,000 employee in the States or $80,000 employee in the States, that's a $100,000 employee here. And that's a great wage in like where we are. Right. Wages are pretty similar. They're not 30% higher up here. <laughs> right, right. No, exactly. Yeah, it's just so fascinating to think. About. Yeah, that's a great way to frame it. It's like you can deliver more service for the same price than we yeah. could or as an example. So that's cool. So that was my that's question. Like a that was like PC way of saying it though, guys, you know? <laughs> no, no, but yeah, no, I get it. I, I, and, and it's not about an exploitation of labor. It's just this question of the cost to deliver a quality of service, right? And so I think about this a lot where, you know, a customer comes and says like, oh, I want, you know, a discount or I want whatever. And I just think to myself like, well, what you really want is value, right? Like nobody Don't ever wait. wants a cheap thing. What they want is value. <laughs> Right. And so I think sometimes there's a conflict between the desire to pay less and also the desire for the output. Right. And so it's like, well, totally. how do we actually deliver value? And so I, I just think a lot about that sort of cost benefit 
question, especially yeah. in this market. It's funny. I was incredibly sick last week, but the one good thing that I did is I read Alex Hermosi's book, Hundred Million Dollar Offers, twice. Yeah, and it really got me realizing, like, oh, people are buying that value gap. That's probably the biggest takeaway, right? People are buying that gap in between what they're paying and what they're getting, right? That's Everybody right. wants to get more than what they're paying for. And so right. if you can provide that as a, as a service provider or as an e-com brand, um, if you could do something to make that gap even bigger, people will buy from you all day. That's right. And what happens is when they feel like they can't control the value increase because that's out of their hands, the only way to get that is to try and lower the price. So anytime a customer comes to me and wants a lower price, what I hear is actually I've got a value problem. You're not, there's a problem with the output of the value. Mm. So I'm always so much more interested in trying to solve that problem than just giving them the lower price because ultimately they're dissatisfied with the output. And what I, what I've come to know is that lowering the price doesn't actually solve that problem. No. It actually, they will still feel like the value is bad. No matter how, like if my phone's broken, it doesn't matter how cheap you try and sell it to me for, mm-hmm. like I'm going to be dissatisfied with the service. Yeah. Right. That's that's a great example. Right. So it's like I think it's like avoid the temptation to cave on the price and go after like where's the value break and how do we solve that? Yeah, absolutely. That's funny. I just, I literally just read $100 million offer last week again. And, oh, you did? Uh, I, yeah, oh, we were yeah, reading it at the same just, time. Yeah, we, we literally were. Yeah. No, <laughs> total coincidence. But yeah, the, uh, I thought his observation about above the line and below the line, as far as thinking about your offer, is like he sort of framed it in that equation. The above the line is essentially price, right? Am I pricing it right or whatever? And then the below the line is like, how good can the product possibly be? And yeah. so often you focus on the top line levers, right? Just raising, lowering the price or whatever, without focusing on if you create the best possible product, people will pay whatever amount of money for it. It just sort of, totally. sort of doesn't matter. So, and, and um, it's funny because, like, so in this moment, I actually think that there's a real tension in the market around this idea right now. Or maybe let me just sort of narrow it. I feel a real tension around this exact idea, which is that I feel an obligation to efficiency to protect cash and simultaneously feel like a desperate desire to improve the quality of the product or service. Mm. And, and so you're like, well, how do I do both? You know, all the yeah. time. And that's, I think in this moment in particular, a real tension for every business owner, brand or service side. You know, the way that I think about this, guys, is creating, and again, it's probably because of, you know, reading Alex Ramosi's book, where you create these things that may take you a hundred hours to create. And you guys do this. Like, I know you guys do this. This is just <laughs> preaching to the choir. This is for everyone who's listening. But create these things that may take you a hundred hours to create, but you don't have to do it again, that add incredible value and separate you from the rest of everybody else. Right. That's the kind of stuff that I'm really interested in building. And that's, I'm a, a really big seven habits of highly effective people fan. I read that book every single year, based my life on those principles, you know, some of those principles. And, you know, one of those big principles is this idea of the quadrants of kind of effectiveness, right? And where you live. And so most of us live in quadrant one, which is everything's on fire all the time, right? You're constantly, everything's in this quadrant of like, Oh my gosh, everything's important. Everything's urgent all the time. But stepping back into quadrant two, which is really where I try and live, is that not urgent, but incredibly important, right? And so building up those kinds of things for your business is living in quadrant two land, right? It's very difficult though, when you have fires coming in all the time. Yeah. Well, so I'd love to... So how do you as a CEO, this is a thing I wrestle with, is I have two problems that inhibit me as a leader, I believe. One is that I feel really competent at the work. 
So doing the work makes me feel. And everyone else is super incompetent. Well, no, no, this is just selfishly. (laughs) I I feel really good when I do Facebook advertising. Like it gives me really positive feedback. I don't really always feel good doing CEO stuff. It's hard. It's confusing. I'm newer at it, right? So I get drawn into the work because it makes me feel good. So that's one problem I have. The other is when there's distrust, I have a tendency to rather than addressing the distrust with the person to just circumnavigate them, to just skip them out of my process. Because Mm. the trust acknowledgement to say to somebody, I don't know that I trust you right now and to work to resolve it, it's hard. Like it feels messy. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and I worry that what happens if we don't get there? Um, And so Mm -hmm. I just sort of bury it. Um, So those are my two problems with like executing against the thing you're doing that like sucks me back into all the fires. Do you have similar experiences, Jordan? And how do you deal with doing your job as a CEO and not stepping in and doing other people's job. Yeah, that was something. So, so I'm at the place right now, you know, we, we talked about this a little bit before with the amount of things that are on my plate where I just don't have the time. There's just not physically the time for me to be able to go in there and execute on anything right now. Like I cannot live in execution land. And so I've had to, it's really been forced on me to be able to try to be some kind of leader. I used to say years ago, I'm like, I am a horrible manager, but I had to figure that out. Right. And so I think the sort of long-winded answer to that question is that I believe in strengths, right? So I really truly believe in strengths. We use Clifton Strengths in all of our companies, and I rely on Clifton Strengths incredibly heavily to be able to get people to do the things that they are naturally good at. So we hire using Clifton Strengths because generally for a, you know, we call our our media buyers and account managers growth strategists because we're really all about strategy, um, strategy first uh, up and up growth commerce. And we know what kind of strengths make an incredibly good growth strategist. I know the kind of strengths that I need in some of our e-com companies in different roles. So we have that strength profile built out for them. Guys, it is never, besides an attitude issue, it has never steered me wrong with hires. That's really fascinating. Yeah. So we use five voices in a similar premise, but we have not done the work to sort of go back and analyze, okay, for successful people in specific job types, what's the profile and how does that all work? So I think it's super interesting. I've always been fascinated by sort of the Ray Dalio principles. Like they have like sort of the baseball card of every employee that they bring yes. to meetings. Yes, we did that, that recently right? like, too. Yeah. 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 I, I think there's so much to be learned there about, uh, yeah, how to help people be successful in the premise and mm-hmm. to kind of identify the, the attributes of humans. So I love that. I want to give you just a quick story for people to, to hang on to with this, the Clifton Strength side. One of my uh, really close to your friends here in the city that I live in, Abbotsford, he runs a, a pretty substantially sized music online lesson company that I'm sure a lot of people have, have heard of out there, uh, mostly in drums. They uh, had gotten their marketing team up to about 28 people um, just on the marketing side. And he was saying, he's like, I've added 10 people and there's no more effectiveness. <laughs> they just, hmm. We're yeah. just not able to be more effective. And so I introduced Clifton Strength to them. They actually ended up going down and getting two of their people trained in Clifton Strengths. And since then, they've been able to pull back the marketing team substantially and the, and the whole team while being incredibly more effective. So just a bit of an encouragement for people out there that this stuff really does work. I, I think what you're saying, and this is a big experience I've had over the last year and a half, is that the emotional time, okay, I'm gonna, those are two weird words, okay? The amount of time spent on resolving emotional deficits between teammates because they don't understand how to communicate well with each other is actually so much higher than I ever could have imagined. Like when two people can't communicate disappointment or frustration or a lack of trust or they sort of step on each other's toes constantly, the inefficiency that gets 
surrounds that is wild. And so I think, mm. I think it's such a great point that if you can figure out a way for building people systems that acknowledge the realities of our differences and how we communicate well and equip people to do that, you just become a better organization. Like yeah. I, I think you, yeah. you just become more effective. So that makes yeah, total totally. sense to me. Yeah. And it's a virtuous cycle too, right? Because then you get, you attract those people that want to be in that kind of environment and generally are high performers. I was going to ask, well, a couple things. One, I'd be interested to hear from you, just given that you have such experience with Clifton Strengths, like what's the strength profile of your ideal growth strategist? Is there, I mean, I imagine that's pretty consistent, which specific strengths are their tops, but like, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, totally. So there are in Clifton Strengths, there's sort of the four areas of strengths. So st strategic is one big bucket. Then we have influencing, we have relationship, and we have executing. Um, so the most ideal top five strengths of a growth strategist are strategy, right? So there is an actual strategic strength within the strategic bucket. Every single one of our growth strategists has strategic. When we have not, when we've hired somebody who doesn't have strategic, they don't last. They're, they're fine media, but that's all that you could get them doing is just buying media. You cannot get them to have the kind, kinds of conversations with, you know, high level clients and be able to actually strategize on what's going to work. They can take orders and that's, that's totally fine. And there's, there's nothing against those kind of people. We, we have to have those kind of people in this world. Next best strengths after that, maybe a little bit more in the strategic bucket. And then it's executing, right? It's interesting because I have no executional strengths in my makeup whatsoever. But every single person around me, every business partner is an achiever and has responsibility. Those are two of the big executing strengths. And so, you know, seeing people with those and finding these partnerships, these strengths partnerships is incredibly important. And it's just the framework that I use. I'm sure you guys are using things similar to that. I just, we have common language around it in our organization to be able to find those strength partnerships. Makes sense. Okay. So let's then segue then from strength and growth strategies specifically to let's say let's phrase this what made or what's the best client that you have that you've ever had on the agency side and maybe think about it in terms of like what's the best relationship you've had what are the characteristics of the type of client you look for where you say this is going to be a good relationship because obviously we have our own opinions about that but i'd be fascinated to hear what your experience with that's been totally i mean i can think of the client immediately so client we worked with <laughs> yeah. for years uh eight figure plus snowboard brand really cool company. So first of all, a company that we really love. We love the product. We love the cool factor of it. They've done tons of licensing deals, which is really fun. Our growth strategists like just love working on that. They really allow us a lot of latitude when it comes to creative, when it comes to copy, when it comes to all of those things and setting the strategy with them. And they really allow us to take the lead when it comes to budget pacing and continuing to scale. So we scaled them from, you know, sort of mid seven figures into the eight figures. And yeah, just a really, really great company to work with. Unfortunately, their uh, facility burned down this year, midway wow. through the winter, which was really sad for them, but uh, they'll be up and running for, uh, for next winter again. Nice. Yeah. I feel like that kind of coincides with our experience too. I don't know, Taylor, if you want to speak to a little bit of like on our side of things, it's yeah. People who treat us as the expert is certainly, I think something that's been helpful, yeah. giving us leeway to be good at what we're good at. I think that's a part of it for sure. I, I think there's this very human thing too. And I think about this a lot of, as our responsibility too. So th this is not one directional because I think we're at our best when we exhibit this attribute too. But when I've had partners that cared about my business, like they didn't care about what they could get from me. They mm. cared that this business was mutually beneficial and they wanted to see me win. Like, yeah. And I can count on it. 
probably one hand the number of times I've felt that where it's like, hey, I'm giving you this feedback because I really care about CTC. I really care about this relationship working. I've done the time to know that like there are lots of agency options and I could choose any of them, but I know in any case I got to make it work. So I'm going to invest in the relationship and I'm going to, I want to see you win. And they've even celebrated with us. They've allowed us to be part of their story. They've acknowledged our contributions, like little things of just mm-hmm. thanking the team working on the client, like how rare it is to receive a, after a great win or a lot of effort. Hey, I just want to say thank you all for the hard work. Like it goes miles with people like in the agency world. And Richard, you say this a lot, like you don't need to make Mm -hmm. millennials care. Like you don't need to make them, if anything, they have a problem of caring too much. If you just give them a little bit of love, a little bit of appreciation, they will literally die for you. You will never have to worry about. And so I think so often, I think there's a missed opportunity because there's this general idea that this relationship should be conflicted in some way. Totally. And I I just bring that into it. I just assert this idea that you're (laughs) attempting to exploit me or or screw me in some way. Yeah. Maybe from past trauma, that's fair and real. But the people that are just like, hey, thank you. (laughs) Hey, I want CTC to thrive. Are you guys doing well? That's amazing. It brings out of us this mutual exchange that I've seen be incredibly productive. Totally. And, and, you know, when we think about that from a, from a principle standpoint, right? In seven habits, that's win-win. That's true win-win is like, Hey, I care just as much about you winning on your side, CTC, as I do. And if we can't get to that level, it's no deal. We can't work together. We have to have this win-win. And I've acquired a lot of companies over the years. Uh, which, you know, I'm, I'm regretting some of them right now. But in those acquisition talks, right, that's the very first thing I say. I said, we have to be completely transparent with each other. I'm going to let you know my ultimate win right now. you got to let me know yours. And if they work together, awesome. I wanted to give a quick, a quick hack as well as a, a CEO or even a manager, something that I love to do all the time that I think really works for millennials is um, I try and send an encouraging message on Slack, like a voice memo every single week to every single one of my employees. So it takes me about an hour to go through all of our companies and I just send a nice message to people and it goes a really long way, guys. Let's talk maybe about, well, sorry, you mentioned a bunch of businesses that you're currently invested in that you're regretting right now. And I think part of that probably has to do with the current climate. So I think what'd be interesting is to go over from your perspective, where you see e-com heading in 2023 and then maybe like the number one tactical tip or strategic tip maybe that you have right now for D2C brands in this new environment. Yeah, totally. So, you know, where I see things going from a revenue perspective is I think things for brands are going to be winning if they're flat or up a little bit this year and being able to maintain costs being down. And it's interesting, Taylor and I were just talking about this on my podcast as well. But those brands that are able to keep their fixed expenses low so that their contribution margin is those are the brands that are going to win. And so we've we've unfortunately had to make some incredibly difficult decisions at some of our brands. In the last two months, I've unfortunately had to let 10 people go from the different companies in anticipation of this happening. Brands that are well capitalized will do incredibly well coming up. Every single one of the brands that we own, we're doing raises at right now. And surprisingly, they've gone very well. I generally, when we're doing raises, I generally actually pose it more as a partnership people coming in rather than just taking on just cash investors. 
And that has worked incredibly well. So, you know, the companies that we have, one, we're still waiting on a bit of capital for, but all of those now are very well capitalized. And I don't actually regret any of those besides one company that I actually ended up having to bankrupt, one acquisition that we did. And that was a really difficult decision, but it was uh, bringing one of our companies down to the tune of about 200 grand a year. So um, we decided just to let that one go. And uh, I haven't even talked about that on social or anything yet, but I think I should because people need to understand that even people like us that look successful make big mistakes. Totally. Yeah. Look, we're sitting here at the beginning of 2022, having done layoffs at the agency, having sold off three of our e-commerce brands at prices that weren't because they were the best price that we dreamed of getting, right? And focusing all of our resources down into our best available asset. And so our experience of the hardship of this moment is like shared. We're empathetic because we're living it. Totally. <laughs> um, and so we are certainly not immune to the realities of what it means. And I think it's, a, it's an important call out, Jordan, is that I'll tweet sometimes and I'll almost want to like follow it up with being like, I say this because I've screwed it up. Like, I like sometimes it's easy. It's easy to speak this wisdom as if like you ascended to this mountain and received it. And like, even I just put out this tweet that was like, there's a competitive advantage for every agency owner who can fall in love with a client service business. Most despise it and want to start other things, brands, SaaS, et cetera. You can outfocus all of them if you want. And like, that is like literally something I should put on a post-it to myself, right? Like, mm, yes, it's yes, not, totally. I, right? Like I am not writing it because I've conquered the idea and it is now an intrinsic reality for me, but it is like, I really believe that. And I'm, I am in the process of going, can I fall in love? Can mm. I be present? Can I focus? You know, like, and so there's this, because I believe it's a really an advantage because I've met people who love service businesses and they're just like, they're not worried about doing all these other things. They're just present and engaged in a way that I like, I envy. Yeah. So actually maybe that's a good segue then. And cause we have about five minutes here into talking about uh, speaking of that question we were talking about before around the best business model. Maybe that's kind of like a general way to phrase it, but Jordan, you've had a lot of experience with a lot of different kinds of brands. And now you are also the owner of an agency, which is of course a very different type of business and one that requires you to be in love with it, let's say. So maybe speak to that, like out of your experience, what, what's maybe been the best experience? And then also what, just from maybe more objective perspective, what do you think is the best business model that you've been involved in? Yeah, I mean, the, as far as, you know, business model, I still love our brands. I absolutely love the brand work. Probably the biggest lessons that I've learned as far as business models are concerned. And so the one company that we unfortunately had to bankrupt, the average order value was, and don't ask me why I did this, why I acquired this company. But the average order value at the time was $25. And I thought, oh, you know, I can get that up. That's something that I can do. And also, they were also in the baby space in the States. And so I was like, oh, what a great opportunity for us to sell our made in Canada baby clothing to their customers. Well, people who spend only $25 don't want our premium baby clothes. That is not what they want. And so it was a subscription bow company and it just didn't work. And so, so I did not, uh, I, I don't think I'm going to go back into subscriptions. I've got some great friends who are doing awesome in the subscription world. I love that high average order value type of business. That business model to me works really, really well. On the agency side, guys, I love it because I love seeing our clients be successful. That's really what it comes down to. I was business, I was e-com owner first and then agency owner after that. And the reason that I, that I started doing that was because I loved seeing other people win. It's incredible to see, like recently, two of my best friends have bought Airbnbs and I've been in the Airbnb world for a while. And I, I think I'm more excited for them than I am for me because seeing other people win is incredible. I don't even count my wins. 
Like when we like, you know, buy another Airbnb or, or do something like that, I'm like, okay, on to the next thing, you know, like rather than actually being able to win. And I need to work on that. I need to work on actually celebrating those things. But yeah, that's a, that's a roundabout way to answer that question for you, Richard. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Well, I think yeah. it's funny. What, what's in it, man, is like, we're all, again, it's this very human thing of like, it's an expression of you as a person. It's not, and we don't behave in this like outcome optimized method as people, yeah. right? It's like, we just behave in the things that interest us. And I think at some point, you know, we're all sort of taking a stock of like, okay, does that take me to the path that I want? And what I've found a lot for agency owners, and I think why I care about this topic is because I think that there's a, I don't know if it's a trope or sort of a cultural narrative around like service business being this like lowbrow. Like it, it's not, <laughs> it's never as cool as this SaaS business or it's never totally. as cool as the brand. Like the agency owners don't get the magazine covers very often, right? Like, so I've never seen an agency owner on the cover of Fast Company, you know, like whatever. And, and so I think <laughs> that somehow we've been led to believe that like the barrier to entry is really low. So part of it's like everybody says they're an agency owner. And so that sort of like makes the crowd feel a little like, well, what are you really doing? But what I've come to appreciate having done brand and done service and even dabbled in SaaS is that a human service business has two really beautiful things. One, it's flexible and the likelihood of death is really low because you can flex your costs up and down. Now there's a human component to that that I don't underestimate the cost of, but yeah. Dying is hard. Dying in e-com is one bad inventory purchase, right? Like you, you can, you can, <laughs> it's that, very easy. It's just, you can't, yeah, you can't turn it back into cash. It just won't happen, right? So there's that. And then there's this like very human feedback piece where markets sometimes are like when I think about the market, like we have a, a customer right now that worked in stand up paddle boards and in 2020 and 2021, their business exploded and there was an externality that drove it. And when that externality went away, you cannot forcefully change the market to need more stand-up paddleboards. No. Like you just, you can't affect it in that way. But a, a service business can always have the opportunity to meet the market in a way that I think also provides this opportunity to, for sustained thriving in almost any arena. And so I think that's another thing is that the, the malleability of what it is, is also you know, like physically more valuable than a stand-up paddleboard. Like you just can't make it something else suddenly. You have yeah. to grind into that market relentlessly. Whereas we could be like, well, maybe Facebook's not a thing anymore. Let's figure out how to do Amazon. Like you totally. could yeah. evolve in that way. Right. So I think that like just if you want to be in business for 30 years and you want to make a great living and you want to build something of real value, like a human service business is an incredible way to do it, in my opinion. Thanks for that, Taylor. Cool. Jordan, really appreciate you joining us for the podcast. Jordan's podcast is called Secrets to Scaling Your E-Commerce Brand. So we'll drop a link in our show notes. Everybody go check it out. It's great. He's great. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us. Guys, really appreciate your time today. And uh, this has uh, been a great connection. And uh, I'll be seeing you guys all over Twitter, I'm sure. Hey, also, if you're a listener and you listen already to both mine and Jordan's podcast, would you tell us? I'm just fascinated to sort of understand how small our worlds are and how much overlap yeah. there is. It'd be awesome to hear from you. If you DM us on Twitter, shoot us an email, let us know like, hey, I've been listening to you both. It was really cool. Or if it's the first time that you've heard from either of us, that'd be great to know too. We're trying this cross-pollination, literally cross-border pollination here to try and get to know each other and our communities a little more. So it'd be great to understand who of you are either hearing us for the first time or or listen to us both. It'd be cool to know. Cool. Awesome. All right. Take care, everyone.